it's been really my honor to fill in for Pastor Anthony. I, I love getting this opportunity. I love this church. And my hope is that in each of these messages, you have found even just a little something that causes you to consider your faith more deeply, to understand your relationship with God, and even transform the way that, that you live your life just a little bit. And so, speaking of transformation, essential questions. Questions, they transform. And Jesus, he asked questions that, that, that did just that, that asked people to consider their spiritual growth and what they were truly seeking. And where we've been planted the, the past three weeks is in Mark chapter 8, because starting with verse 22 in Mark chapter 8, all the way through the end of chapter 10, there is this, this passage that is bookended by two healing events, the healing of, of two blind people. And, and those two healings bookend uh, Jesus revealing himself clearly to his disciples. But Jesus is met in return by misunderstanding. The disciples were not seeing, seeing clearly. And, and that's, what we, that's what we looked at the first week. The first question we talked about was, do you see anything? That was Jesus' question to the blind man as the disciples were watching, watching this, this healing. It's the only recorded miracle Jesus does that happens in parts. And Jesus was demonstrating there that the disciples didn't fully see what he, what he was doing. Then last week, Jesus gets a little more bold with the disciples, and he asks them, who do you say that I am? Because he was, he was showing them that they did not quite understand, that, they, that their, their vision of who he was was clouded by what their expectations were, where their identity was rooted. And we talked last week about our tendency to create a Jesus in our, in our own image, a Jesus that we are comfortable with following, a Jesus that we can manipulate as, as we need to. And the last thing that we read in the passage uh, of Mark chapter 8, it was in verse 33, was Jesus telling his disciples, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely, the concern, but merely human concerns. So that takes us into this next section, and I'm going to read it again just because I, I, I think that's, that's helpful for me and hopefully helpful for you. So if you have a Bible, open it, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 8, this is verse 34, grab your phone, it's going to be on the screen, whatever you're most comfortable with, and it starts off like this. Then he called the crowd to him. So now it's not just Jesus and his disciples, Jesus wants to teach everyone these truths called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So after reading that, I want to I read a poem that can help shed a little bit of light on this. Um, it was written about 40 years ago or so by a gentleman named Charlie Daniels. And it says this, The devil went down to Georgia 
yeah, that, you know where I'm going with this. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sawing on a fiddle and playing it hot, only Charlie Daniels can work the word sawin with no G into a song. And the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, boy, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you'd care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play a pretty good fiddle boy, but give the devil his due. I'll bid, bid, excuse me, can't read, so excited. I'll bet a fiddle of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. And the boy said, my name is Johnny and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet and you're going to regret because I'm the best that's ever been. So maybe the next time you hear that song on the radio, if you ever encounter it, you'll think about it in a little bit more of a spiritual, spiritual way. Johnny was willing to bet his soul on a fiddle made of gold. Now, back in 1979 when this song was written, a fiddle of gold... Uh, judging by the approximate weight of materials that would be needed to, to make it, was worth $167,000. Okay, so that's it's not really that great. So let's project it to today's money so that we can, we can get a feel for that. Today, a fiddle made of gold would be worth $588,000. So the question is, what is your soul worth? What would you be willing to give in exchange for your soul? Was that a good deal for Johnny? I don't know. I don't know him as a person, so we'll have to let him be the the judge of that. But what this passage shows us is that all of life is about making exchanges. Everything in life has a cost, whether it's something as simple as going to the grocery store and buying some green beans, right? There's a cost that is associated with that. There's a cost associated with eating lots of high-fat, high-salt foods, There's a cost associated with getting married or with having kids. Every time you say yes to something, by default, you're saying no to dozens and dozens of other things. It doesn't matter if it's a good decision or not. I mean, getting married, having kids, those are are great things. So a cost is not necessarily bad. In our lives, there's a cost if we work late all the time. We might end up hurting others. That's why... It's called spending our time. We're taking what we're given and we're paying it out for for different activities. So whether it's time or whether it's money, whether it's emotional energy, whether it's your very self, there is a cost associated with everything. And so the question is, do you weigh the costs of what you do? Do you have in mind the concerns of God or merely human concerns. So rereading the first verse in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, the first one we talked about, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So here Jesus is presenting the cost of discipleship. See, discipleship is a process of change and of transformation. Back in the day of Jesus, if you were a disciple of a teacher, you would have given your whole life to this person. You would have lived with them. You would have traveled with them. You would have sat at their feet for, for their teaching. So it's, it's about an apprentice becoming more like the master. And so when Jesus defines discipleship for us, he says there's three things involved. There is denying yourself. There is taking up your cross. And there is following him. 
But here's how we make discipleship look. We create a human concern out of discipleship. We take denying ourselves to be an act of making ourselves more perfect. I need to act and I need to think more like Jesus does, which is true, but we tend to start with our own effort. And so we fall into this cycle. I've cleverly called it the trying harder cycle, and you'll see it on the screen, I think. Yes, there it is. Self-made graphics. So what we do is we spend our time stopping or trying to stop the things we know we shouldn't be doing. We spend our time trying real hard to stop thinking the things that we shouldn't be thinking. And then we spend our time trying real hard to do the things we know we ought to be doing. And so we fall into this cycle. We try harder. Okay? I know I shouldn't be looking lustfully at that person. I am going to try harder not to. Then we get exhausted with the effort because we are responsible for changing ourselves. And it gets tiring. And I got to constantly battle. So then we give up. Say, you know what? It's not worth the effort. Or, you know what? I'm just this one time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to indulge myself. Then we uncover the shame that we have been trying to to, to cover in ourselves, our sense of value, value, valuelessness, there you go, it's harder to say it should be, is uncovered because we're trying to create our own value. So when we, when we get to that point, we might, call, we might call on Jesus and say, please help, and then we repeat the process. Or we might get to that point and we say, where are you, God? I feel like you have abandoned me. The truth is that God was never part of the process to, be, to begin with. See, we make discipleship about putting on good behaviors. I'm going to read the Bible every day. I'm going to lead a small group. I'm going to show up at church every time the doors are open. I'm going to smile when, in front, when I'm with people because I want them to think that Jesus is working for me. It's about making ourselves okay. And then... Even though he hasn't been part of the process, we ask Jesus to bless our efforts. Jesus, make good out of, out of what I'm doing. The benefit to us is we get to be in control. We get to decide what's right and what isn't. And we saw that in Peter last week. If you were here last week, after Jesus told the disciples, guys, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be put to death and then I'm going to be raised on the third day. He couldn't have made it clear what was going to happen, what the Messiah really was. At that point, Peter, because he's Peter and he's bold and he's got to do this, he takes Jesus, puts his arm around him and says, you don't understand, you can't die. Peter wanted Jesus to bless his efforts. Peter wanted Jesus to be who he wanted him to be. And Jesus' response was, I didn't come to to prop up your broken identity. I didn't come to give you a a sense of significance the way that you want to have that sense of significance. I came to do it different. So when Jesus says that uh, when you make the tree good, the fruit will be good, what we try to do in our discipleship is we try to make good fruit in the hopes that the tree will then become good. And what that's called is self-justification. What it is is saying to God, I'm okay, and here's why. 
because I've done these things. And it's part of that whole, whole lie that we have that, that God helps those who helps them help themselves, which is a lie. That's not in the Bible. It's not true at all. What God's going to say is, depart from me because I never knew you. He has, he has a more fundamental concern than our behavior. He wants us. So the way of Jesus, this narrow path, it's, it's a lot simpler than we make it, but it's also, it's also a lot harder. There is a cost that comes with our discipleship. When we say that I have decided to follow Jesus, I am going to go wherever he leads me, there is a cost. There is an exchange that takes place when we're in Christ. And, and what, that, what, what it means to deny ourselves is that that, that old nature... That, that false sense of who we are, that wholeness that we try to get apart from God, we've got to put that to death. In fact, when you read this interaction in, in Luke, Luke says daily. When you wake up in the morning, your inclination is going to be selfish and prideful, and you've got to deny that right off the bat. If you're like me, you've got to do it pretty much every five minutes because my inclination is to do what I want to do. Denying yourself is about surrender. Are you surrendering who you are? Are you surrendering your purpose? Are you surrendering where you're going to Jesus? Are you willing to stop doing what's right in your own eyes? To say and judge, this is okay because I feel like it's okay. Denying ourselves is about turning our face to God so that he can be the source of of who we are. So it starts with denying ourself, not minimizing our value, but maximizing it because we're seeking it from God. And then Jesus says, then you have to take up your cross. And if you're like me, I've said this before, so I'm, I'm throwing this out, out, out there with no judgment. We sometimes diminish the cross, right? If, if we're driving and we get a flat tire, we say, there's the cross that I've got to bear. Or if, if we get the flu, there's my cross, I'm going to bear it. Well, no, those are parts of a broken world that we live in. And God definitely can and does use those things for our spiritual growth. But those aren't crosses that we have to bear. A cross is an abomination. Right? In this culture, when Jesus would have said this to these people, you've got to take up your cross, they would have been disgusted. Because you couldn't go on any road in the Roman world, without there being cross after cross of criminals hanging from them in some phase of dying or, or decomposition. It was a symbol of control by Rome. It was a sign of oppression, and you better behave the way we want you to, or we're going we're to take you out. So taking up our cross is a sign of our willingness to reject the world, to reject the empire that that we live in. It's our saying, come what may, I am going to persevere. That regardless of what my circumstances tell me, I know that God is going to be walking through this with me. And if we think about Jesus bearing his cross when he was in Jerusalem, when he was walking up to the mountains so that they could nail him to it, Jesus stumbled a few times. We're going to stumble a few times as we 
go into this willing arrangement. Jesus had to have somebody bear the cross with him for a time to help him. That's why we enter into community, so that there are people that, that help us and encourage us and keep us spurred on as we, as we enter into this arrangement of being willing to say, you know what? I'm going to forsake the world because I'm going to turn my attention to God. So we're supposed to deny ourselves. We're supposed to take up our cross. And then the last part of this discipleship process is we're to follow Jesus. Now, where did Jesus go with his cross? He went up to the mountain. They nailed, nailed him to it. And he used this cross, which was a sign of, of, of being a captive. And he used it to buy our freedom. Jesus put himself aside to bear our sin on the cross. I mean, he denied himself, right? He was God in the flesh, and he allowed himself to be hung onto this, onto this piece of wood. He said in the garden before that happened, he said, Father, if there is any way, please take this cup from me so that I don't have to go through this. But then he followed that up with, not your will, or excuse me, not my will, but your will be done. So he was willing to put himself aside to willingly take up this cross and go to the purpose that he was given. And see, I think a lot of times we cheer Jesus on in the, please take this cup, right? Like, I think we're rooting for it. Yes, I would have done the same thing. You know, like when, when in our marriage, we pray for our spouse to change, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because it would be unanimous. Who here has prayed for their spouse to change, right? And we do that because it's a lot more painful to have to examine ourselves and to put ourselves to death and see what issues we're causing in the relationship than it is to say, you know what, it's their fault. Or we pray for more money. Probably in reality, most of us in here do not need more money. We pray, we pray for more instead of examining our consumerism and our materialism. And the, where, what's the origin of this discontent that I feel? What am I trying to feed by, by getting more? When we feel anxiety, right? anxiety is a symptom of something. We feel anxiety, we pray for Jesus to take it away instead of looking, where is this anxiety coming from? What, what am I troubled about? What, what am I not surrendering? What am I not trusting to God? Death precedes new life. If Jesus didn't die, he couldn't have been resurrected. I mean, it's that simple. If we don't die to ourselves, we can't experience who we're intended to be in God. This was true in the garden, right? Death precedes new life. God killed an animal to cover up the shame of the man and woman. This is true in Egypt. When the, before the Israelites were freed, they had to kill the firstborn lamb and put the blood on the doorway. Death preceded new life. That's, this is true of the nation of Israel. They had to, they had to celebrate sacrifices and, and do that at the temple. Death precedes new life and forgiveness. This is a principle of nature, 
right? We can't have more plants until the fruit of another plant dies and dries out so that we can have new life. And it's true spiritually of us in Christ. In John 12, 24, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. See, our life is supposed to produce. Our life is supposed to be filled with, 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 with abundance. And that comes from dying to ourself, to putting ourself to death. And make no mistake about this. There is grief associated with loss. Right? When we turn our back on the things that have been sustaining us, that's hard. That's painful. I mean, it's like if somebody is an alcoholic, it's like taking away all of, all of, their, all of their drink. Right? There's going to be a process, a painful process. Even though it's a healthy process, it's going to hurt as they go through that. See, Jesus doesn't. Jesus absolutely cannot leave you the way that you are. He loves you too much. He loves you too much to let you rest in your brokenness, to wallow in in, in the mud. And our resistance, our wanting to self-justify, our wanting to try harder, that's, that's our prideful, false self. Okay, that's, the, that's our identity we create apart from God. The flesh wants what opposes the spirit. The spirit wants what opposes the flesh. There is a conflict between who we were and who we are in Christ now. And before we can experience the blessings of the new life, before we, before we experience the, the, the full restoration when, when Jesus returns, our old self has to die. Jesus died so that our identities would be redeemed, communion with God would be restored for all men. We do it so that we can experience that communion with God and so that other people can see what has happened in us. Continuing in the Mark passage, Jesus goes on and says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The gospel. The good news. All of us in our mind, every one of us sitting in this room, has a picture of what a better life would look like. If I said to you, how do you know you're okay, you would be able to answer the question, I know I'm okay if we, con- we conform our lives to-, to an image of what would be better. We all have personal gospels, right? The false gospels. Whether it's the-, the gospel of body transformation or education or I need to be in a relationship or if I just had more money or if I just had a child to love me, all of this, all of these are, are, are gospels. The lie, capital L lie, the original lie, the, the lie that, that precedes and supersedes all other lies 
started in the garden when the serpent asked Adam and Eve, don't you want to be like God? The capital L lie is that wholeness is available to us apart from God. Where are you looking for wholeness? Because what Jesus is saying in, in Mark here is that there's an exchange you're making. When you're looking for wholeness in something of this world and a concern of man, you're really exchanging your soul for that. When we look for our, our significance in this life, we're really separating ourselves from God. So there is a cost that comes with believing the gospel. There is an exchange that comes when we trade our personal vision of what the good life is going to look like for the truth that Jesus has. See, Jesus' family, they didn't affirm him. If if you've read through Matthew, you know that Jesus' family thought he was crazy, and they were chasing around trying to bring him home. He was ostracized by the the religious leaders, the one group you would have thought was ready and willing and able to, to understand who he was. They rejected him. He was deserted by his closest friends, right? As he's under, under trial in Jerusalem, they all scatter out of fear because they still don't understand what's next. When you read about Jesus' temptations in Matthew chapter 4, they're, they're temptations of identity. Satan says, if you are the son of God, prove yourself, earn my affirmation, but Jesus wasn't looking for, for, to those things. He, he knew. He was settled. He looked to his relationship with the Father to define who he was and who he was intended to be and what his purpose was and why he had to go and carry that cross and, and, to, and to die. Jesus sometimes spoke of, of hating this life. And I think that's a passage for us that's kind of scary to think about because what, what does it mean to hate this life? Does that mean that I, can't, that I can't go out to eat and enjoy? Does that mean that if I, if I find pleasure in, in a sunset or in loving another person, does that mean that, that I'm not hating this life? And we misconstrue. I mean, God made everything good. When he put the man and the woman in the garden, he made everything for their enjoyment and for, for, their, for their good pleasure. What hating is about, what hating this life the reason that we should, we should detest it is because it's about our source. We should hate where we look to for spiritual nourishment that is not God. I mean, if you think about Israel, they had feasts and celebrations throughout the year. Obviously, God wants us to have some, some enjoyment. God, uh, Jesus himself went to parties and he, he, he had, had big dinners. Heaven is going to be a wedding banquet. God is concerned with our enjoyment of this life. But what he's even more concerned about is what is your source? Galatians chapter 5 verse 24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires crucified the flesh. We've put to death the false sense of identity and wholeness. So that means that we don't look to our family for our ultimate value. That we don't look to a spouse 
to, com- to complete us. We don't look to wealth for security. We don't look to sex for affirmation. We don't look to a role that we have for a sense of power. Those are so- just a small sampling of the things that we look to to prop ourselves up. Loving or hating this life, saving or losing this life, speaks to where your identity, you get your identity from. And Jesus, he surrendered to the Father. And the gospel for us it is that it's Jesus, not this life, not our effort, not trying harder, that restores us. So from there, Jesus finishes in this passage, and he says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So this is speaking to the concerns of man. This is seeking, this is, this is talking about where are, where are you aligned? Are, are you aligned with a generation, with a culture that is actively thumbing its nose at God? All the world is, is doing that, that, that is not in Christ. Adulterous, adulterous means unfaithful. Adulterous means distrusting. So put God on the back burner. Sinful is about self-preservation. It's about making myself okay. It's about doing what's right for me, not what God asked me to do. And we live in a world that is actively at war with God. If you're looking for the spiritual battle, just look around. And Jesus warned his disciples that whoever's not with him is against him. He only had two categories of people, either people that are with me or people that are against me. There's no third middle party of people who are undecided. There's a cost that comes with not being wholehearted. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, if you've ever thought about it, if you've ever been to a Bible study on it, I'm going to summarize the book of Revelation in two words. Solve all your problems right now. The book of Revelation can be summed up in be ready. From the very beginning, from the first words of it till the end, it is about being ready. Jesus is coming back. And that's what he's telling his disciples right now. He's saying, I am going to come back. Everybody is going to have to look me in the face. And then we're going to have conversation. Either depart from me, I never knew you, or come to me. You're my friend. So for those who seek their own definition of self, who are actively warring against the the, the created order, Jesus is going to give them what they want. Might not seem like a gift at the time, but it's going to be what the life lived had sought. So there's no riding the fence for any of us. To the church that was lukewarm in Revelation, Jesus said, I would rather you be cold than lukewarm. Lukewarm is more offensive than being cold. And I'm going to spit you out of my mouth if, if, if you're lukewarm. It's repulsive. Make a decision. God has shown enough that you can either say yes or no. And there's precedent. In Luke chapter 17, he writes uh, 
looking back on the days of Noah, and he says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, they were drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. So think about this. In the days of Noah, Noah's building a boat in the desert, right? That seems like an odd thing. In the desert, Noah is building a boat and he's preaching repentance. He's saying, come to God, something is coming. Kind of like the church. The church is a boat. And we're to be actively engaging people to come join this boat. Jesus is going to be coming back. And so Noah's telling everybody, it's going to rain soon. And, and God, which probably frustrated Noah a lot, took 120 years to make this rain come. I mean, can you imagine having to defend yourself for 120 years against everybody saying, yeah, right, you said that for the last 119 years. There's no rain coming, Noah. Just come on to the marriage. Just like God's slowness now is his grace and his mercy on all of us so that we can know Jesus better, so that we can live a life so other people can see Jesus in us. And in Noah's day, no one was concerned. No one outside of Noah's family was worried. They were, they were just fine pursuing their sense of wholeness and happiness and good feelings apart from, from the Creator. Our love of God is not a part-time job. Our love of God is to be who we are. It is supposed to be the key component of how, how we define ourselves. It, it's not loving God to say, I'm going to be who I want. That's, that's affirming self rather than denying it. it. It's not loving God to search for life in, in the world. That's a battle that, that is going to be lost. Loving God takes our whole heart soul, mind, and strength. Our whole being is supposed to be part of this. And so, as I finish up this, this third talk in this series, Essential Questions, here, here are a couple questions for you to think about as you leave here and you have lunch and maybe talk about at the Texas Roadhouse. What area or areas of your life have you not surrendered to Jesus? What are you still clinging to? What are you afraid to give over because you think there's not going to be something better on the other side? And then below that, what are the reasons that you're still clinging to that? Let the truth of Jesus speak to those reasons so that you can release your grip. Again, thank you for letting me be here for three weeks. Appreciate it. I've loved it. Please pray with me. God, thank you so much for the promise of Jesus' return. That we're we're not here out of your sight. That we're not here out of your concern. That every day, I'm sure, you long to be reunited with us face to face. But I also thank you for the grace and the mercy that allows all of us to know Jesus better, all of us to get rid of the stuff that that causes us to see you unclearly. And I just pray that as, as, as all of us leave here today, that there is at least one truth that we can latch onto, 
one, one truth that will allow us to live this week differently than we lived last week. And I pray, God, that that will allow us to live in your favor. We thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.